Well, please turn again in God's Word to the Old Testament, uh, turning now to Exodus chapter 20 on page 74 of the Bible, if you're using one of the church Bibles, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Come this morning to consider the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The Pharisees prided themselves on not breaking this commandment because they had never had sexual relations with anyone other than their own wives. But the Lord Jesus showed how that was a very narrow and uh, misleading interpretation of this commandment. And I want us to think together this morning about how we may be guilty of breaking this commandment, but then more positively, how we can guard against doing so. And our title this morning is words taken from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. And I want us to notice two things together. First of all, the scope of the commandment, and then secondly, uh, and at more length, the solution to the problem. So first of all, the scope of the commandment. What we noticed last week about the sixth commandment, as interpreted by the larger catechism, applies to the seventh commandment as well. In other words, this commandment doesn't just forbid the actual final act of adultery itself, but it includes everything and anything that tends towards it, that feeds into it, that contributes to it. If adultery is the destination or the end point, we're not even to step onto the road that will lead us there. And adultery like murder, is never something that just happens out of the blue. No one just wakes up in the morning and decides that they're going to commit adultery that day. It is almost always the end result of a process, a process of deliberate or unconscious conditioning. Adultery always begins in the mind and in the heart long before it ever finds expression in the physical act. It may never find expression in the physical act, but it begins always in the mind and in the heart. And the Lord Jesus is very clear, isn't he, that the scope of this commandment is much wider than just the act of sexual intercourse with someone other than your husband or your wife. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, where the Lord is expounding the law, he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We break this commandment 
when we give to someone else a place, not just in our beds, but in our minds and in our hearts, the place that belongs only exclusively to our husband or our wife. It's not just about giving someone the place in your bed that belongs to your spouse. It's giving to anyone else the place in your heart and mind that belongs to them alone. Generally speaking, men and women are tempted to break this commandment in different ways. This is a general principle, but I think it is generally true. Men, I think, are tempted to imagine sexual encounters with women other than their wives. And women are tempted to daydream about romantic encounters with men other than their husbands. Men fantasize about sexual encounters. Women, I think, tend to daydream about romantic encounters. Now, those are not mutually exclusive categories, but I think that they are generally true. And all these fantasies are sinful. Jesus says they are all part and parcel of adultery. This is where adultery, all adultery, begins. A woman doesn't set out necessarily to be unfaithful. I'm thinking here about Christian men and women. A Christian woman doesn't set out to be unfaithful and to break her marriage vows. More often than not, it begins with idealizing another man in her mind as a perfect, caring, sensitive friend, someone who listens to her, someone who understands her, someone who empathizes with her in a way that she feels that her husband simply doesn't. And soon she starts seeking out that man because talking to him makes her feel happy. And she becomes increasingly dissatisfied with the husband she has. And instead of working at her own marriage, she fantasizes about this other man being her husband. I don't think that it's necessarily sexual uh, in many cases for women. It's romantic. It's someone who cares, someone who's sensitive, someone who listens, someone who gives time to her. A man may not intend to do anything about the lustful fantasies that he plays out in his imagination. He may not think that he's doing anyone any harm by these secret, private thoughts. But of course, the longer they go on, and the more that they're reinforced by things that he reads, things that he views, the more attractive and the more powerful and the more absorbing they become. If a man is constantly imagining committing adultery, it breaks down his resistance to the idea of actually doing it. If he's already rehearsed it in his mind hundreds and hundreds of times, then doing it is a much easier proposition. And then 
when one day the opportunity presents itself without realizing it, you've conditioned yourself, you've prepared yourself, you've practiced giving in. And so we need to be aware of the scope of the commandment. It's not just about the final physical act. It's everything, it's anything that contributes and leads up to it, the scope of the commandment. And we need to be aware of the different ways that that might work, uh, what the different uh, ways that looks for men and for women. We need to know ourselves. We need to pray that God would give us the honesty to be able to evaluate our own hearts, particularly in these kinds of things. Um, I, I would encourage you to talk about these things, these temptations, uh, with your spouse, uh, with me as your minister, with your elder, with a trusted Christian friend. Sin thrives in the darkness and in secret. Uh, and by bringing these things out into the light and naming them and being accountable to someone, uh, we're able to put them to death much more effectively. So the scope of the commandment. But then secondly, I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem. And the Bible's guidance is clear and uncompromising. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Run in exactly the opposite direction as fast as you possibly can. Put as much distance between you and sexual immorality as you can. And sadly, that is not what many Christians do today. Far too often, Christians go as close as they can to sexual immorality, and they end up falling over the cliff edge. They end up getting sucked in. There's that question that young people repeatedly asked and have done for generations. How far can we go before we're married? What is okay to do physically, sexually, before we're married? And that is entirely the wrong question, isn't it? The question is not how far can we go. The question is not how close can we get without actually sinning. The question is, how can we stay as far away as possible from any kind of sexual immorality? We need to imagine that sexual temptation and sin is a vicious dog that wants to rip us to pieces. If you saw a dog like that, you wouldn't be asking the question, how far, can, how close can I get? How close can I get to this raging bull in a field without actually being gored and trampled to death? No, you don't want to go anywhere near it. You want to stay as far as possible away from it. To update uh, an illustration from one of the Puritans, John Owen, you imagine that your body is saturated in petrol, that someone has just emptied a, 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 a gallon container of petrol all over you and you're dripping with petrol from head to foot. You wouldn't be asking, how close can I get to a flame without igniting all this petrol? You would be staying as far away from it as you possibly can. Even the smallest, tiniest spark 
because you know how deadly even a little spark could be. And yet so many Christians today are dancing in and out of the flames, doused, as it were, in petrol. We need to see this sin of sexual immorality in all of its horrible ugliness and danger. It's like the sirens of Greek mythology. The sirens were those mythical creatures that lived on an island in the Mediterranean. Uh, They looked like stunningly beautiful women, and they sang with an irresistible sweetness uh, that lured sailors onto the rocks of their island. No sailor could go past uh, if they heard the sirens singing. They couldn't resist. They they were drawn uh, irresistibly uh, to them. And as soon as their ships were wrecked on the rocks, the sirens transformed into the hideous monsters that they really were and devoured their victims. And actually, that's a good illustration of Proverbs 7.27 where Solomon says that the adulteress's house is like a gateway into the grave. It is a gateway to death. And there's a great pile of dead bodies down there under the adulteress's bed. People that have been lured in by this pleasurable sexual temptation, promising so much pleasure And yet it only delivers emptiness and guilt and destruction and death. So what is the solution to the problem? Well, let me suggest three things. The first thing that we need to do is we need to reduce the stimuli. Reduce the stimuli. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29. Again, that portion of the Sermon on the Mount where he deals with these things. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, Jesus is saying here, if something is leading you into sin, whatever it is, you need to get rid of it. A friendship with a man who is not your husband or a woman who is not your wife, and it's beginning to occupy your thoughts and your time far more than it ought to, Perhaps you're texting back and forth when you ought not to be texting one another at all. You're hiding it from your husband or your wife. Or maybe it's a television program that makes you dissatisfied with your marriage, puts covetous thoughts into your head, makes you long for a different partner. Maybe it puts impure thoughts into your mind. Internet sites, of course, this is a huge uh, problem in itself. Internet pornography, because of its accessibility and its apparent anonymity. Maybe it's music, maybe it's pop songs. The lyrics of so many pop songs 
glorify sexual immorality. They don't just talk about it, they glorify it, they glamorize it. It is the theme of almost every single pop song, and we need to be aware of that. Perhaps for others, it's novels that you read, things that perhaps might seem innocent. Different things affect different people in different ways. And you need to know what are the stimuli that affect you. What is it that leads you into sin? What is it that puts ideas in your brain that you find hard to shake off? In these verses, Jesus says, get rid of it. He says, no matter how agonizingly painful it may be, get rid of it. Can you imagine taking hold of your eye and gouging it out of its socket and ripping it out of your head? Can you imagine taking an axe and cutting off your hand? But Jesus says, no matter how much it hurts, it may be excruciating not to watch your favorite TV program ever again. Not to be able to go and see that film that everyone is raving about. But Jesus says, if that's what it takes to protect yourself, then do it. If you have to throw your TV in the bin, if you have to get rid of your computer, if you have to do without a smartphone, if that's what it takes, no matter how painful it is, no matter how inconvenient it is not to have a right hand or a right eye. And I mean, a smartphone nowadays is very hard to function in society, even to pay for car parking. Uh, so many things that we rely on our smartphones now in order to do. It's going to be like being disabled, isn't it? It's going to be like only having sight in one eye and only having one hand. But Jesus says, if that's what it takes to keep you pure, to protect you from sexual immorality, then do it. It's the right eye. It's the right hand, the most precious, the most valuable thing, something that is near and dear to your own heart. It's like a part of you. It is a part of you, of course, but Jesus is talking about these stimuli that, that, that lead us to sin. But if that's what it takes to keep you pure, so be it. Job says in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Solemn covenant, a vow. I am not going to do this. I vow that I will not do it. And when someone made a covenant, there were penalties, there were curses, as well as blessings. Blessings for obedience, for keeping the vow, and curses for disobedience. Very often you were pledging yourself to death. May I die if I break this solemn undertaking. Make a covenant that you're not going to look at something but will make you lust. No matter how painful it is. No matter how extreme it is. No matter how radical it appears to the world. Gouging out an eye. Cutting off a hand. What kind of weirdo are you? Jesus says, no matter how radical it seems, if it makes you look like a fanatic, whatever it takes, holiness 
matters more. Purity matters far more than public opinion. Remember Billy Graham saying about how he wouldn't ever be in a room alone with another woman who wasn't his wife. And the world poured scorn on him and said, that is so extreme, that is fanatical, that is ridiculous. But that's what it took for him to keep a good conscience and uphold his testimony. It doesn't matter how radical it seems. You find that you're always talking to the same man in your workplace, to the same woman in the church, that you're seeking them out, that you're texting them every day. Stop it! Just stop it. It might seem radical to the world. It might seem fanatical to the world that you don't have a smartphone because you don't want the temptation of internet pornography. But if your, sin, if your phone causes you to sin, prize it out of your hand, stamp on it, and then throw away the pieces. Robert Murray McShane says, I ought to mark the occasions of sin and avoid the occasions as much as the sins themselves. What are the things that lead you into sin? Avoid those things just as much as you avoid the sins themselves. Again, the internet is such a huge problem. Statistics show that this is a massive problem for men particularly, not just for men, for women as well, but particularly for men in the churches. This is not just something that's in the world. This is in the churches as well. And so, men, if you don't have a program like Covenant Eyes on your computer, then I would strongly recommend that you get something like that for your computers, for your phones, and that will send a list of everything that you look at on the internet to your accountability partner. It might be your elder, might be your wife, might be a, a, a close, trusted friend. Now, covenant eyes will not deal with your heart attitude. It's not enough just to not be able to get access to these things without being found out, but it is a very helpful way in reducing the stimuli, in reducing the temptation. It's part of the solution, but it is not the whole solution, and it is not the most important part of the solution. Reduce the stimuli. God has designed men to be aroused by what we see. And that means that as men, we have to control our eyes. That is on us. That is our responsibility. But I want to say to you women that you have a responsibility to your brothers to reduce the stimuli to their eyes. You need to be very, very careful about what you wear, and I'm delighted that that is the case here in our congregation, but I don't want to take it for granted that that will always be the case. We need to be so careful uh, as we train our children in these things. I hope that no woman here would ever dress in a way that is deliberately provocative, trying to attract the gaze of a man's eye, but it's quite possible that you could be doing it in innocence because you don't realize the effect that you're having on your brothers around you. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 9, women should adorn themselves 
in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. This is not my puritanical idea. It's not the Apostle Paul's idea. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ says to women about how you dress. And to all of us, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Our bodies are not ours to do with as we please. It's, it's tra- I mean, we, we, we say that over and over again when we're talking about uh, the whole abortion debate. These women who think that they can do what they like, it's my body, it's my choice. And we say, it's not your body, it's not your choice. And then we seem to forget that when it comes to sexual immorality. Uh, our bodies are not our own to do with as we please. So reduce the stimuli. Second thing is resist temptation. Resist temptation. Because even if we reduce the stimuli to sin as much as we possibly can, we will still be tempted. That's why I say Covenant Eyes on your computer accountability software is only a little part of the solution. You can't escape temptation. That was the mistake that was made by the early monastics in the Christian church. They thought that if they withdrew from the world and lived in monasteries and convents, secluded away uh, with nothing but their Bibles and physical work, they thought that if they reduced the stimuli to zero, then they would be safe. They would be out of the reach of temptation. But they discovered, didn't they, that temptation can't be shut out behind the walls of a monastery or a convent because we take our indwelling sin, we take the flesh with us wherever we go. Temptation will be a reality for every one of us until we arrive in heaven. No matter how careful we are, we will always be tempted. And temptation can come suddenly and unexpectedly, and sometimes it comes with demonic fierceness. I'm sure we've all experienced that at times, when perhaps out of nowhere, it wasn't even that we were flirting with with temptation, we weren't uh, increasing the stimuli, uh, and yet out of the blue, these awful, wicked thoughts invade our minds, and, and we're conscious that this is actually the attack of the devil. Temptation can come suddenly and fiercely, and we need to make up our minds beforehand, like Daniel did, that we are simply going to resist, that we are not going to give in. It is simply a matter, although it's not a simple matter, but it is simply a matter of saying no to ungodliness. It is an exercise of the will. That's something that is I think, very unpopular. Maybe it's never been popular, but I think in our culture, uh, there's not a lot of willpower uh, in all kinds of ways, not a lot of self-discipline. It's not easy. It is very hard. It is painful to say no to sin. 
But the good news is that with God's strength, we can do it. It is always possible for every Christian to resist every sin. No sin is too hard for you to overcome. 1 Corinthians 10.31, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It feels when you're being tempted, particularly in the whole realm of sexual sin, it feels as though you can't resist. The devil wants us to believe that. He wants us to think you can't, you're too weak, you can't resist, you can't say no. But God is faithful. And it says in God's Word that He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. If you are being tempted by something, by any sin, you must be able to bear it. You must be able to say no, or else God's Word is a lie here. Or James 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. Boys and girls, you think that you can't resist. It's too hard to say no. That the devil is too strong. But it says here that by God's strength, you can resist the devil. And he will flee from you. We don't always resist. But we always can. God says you can. Sexual temptation comes with a physical compulsion as well as the mental attraction. There is something uniquely powerful, I think, about sexual temptation. And the devil wants us to think, because we have fallen so many times before, that we can't resist this time either. But that is not true. 1 John 4 verse 4, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We need to believe these promises. The one who is in you is greater. The Holy Spirit in you is greater than the devil who is in the world. Do you believe that? Of course you believe that. Of course you believe the Holy Spirit is more powerful than the devil. But we've got to remember it when we're tempted. The one who's in me, who fills me and who empowers me, gives me strength, he is stronger than the devil. Reduce the stimuli, resist temptation, and then thirdly, redirect your energies. Redirect your energies. It's not enough to say no to sin. We need to be saying yes to righteousness. We need to be doing something positive. It can actually be counterproductive to think too much about temptation. That might seem a strange thing for a minister to say, but sin is so toxic, it's so poisonous, it's so powerful that even thinking about it even talking about it, even reading a Christian book about it, and hearing a sermon about it, even praying about it, can tempt us to do it. Those are not 
well, I'm paraphrasing, but those are words from Robert Murray McShane, that godly, renowned for his godliness, minister of Dundee in the 1800s. We need to focus on righteousness. We need to set before us the beauty of holiness, the goodness of the Lord and of His law. Thomas Chalmers preached a very uh, effective uh, and influential sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In other words, the thing that will really help us to resist sin is not just kind of focusing on the sin and turning away from it and saying, no, 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 but it's actually to have a new affection, a greater affection for something that is good, that completely puts into the shade this sin that we're trying to resist. We may come back to that in a future study. This was, if you know your Greek myths, this was the approach of Orpheus, actually, when he sailed past the island of the Sirens. When Odysseus went past the island of the Sirens, he wanted to hear them sing, but he didn't want to wreck the boat, obviously, and destroy himself and his crew. And so he got the crew to stick wax into their ears and then to tie him to the mast tightly so that they couldn't hear the singing uh, and so they wouldn't be affected. And he would hear the singing, but he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And certainly that worked okay. They were safely past the sirens. But then on another occasion, Orpheus was in the boat, and Orpheus was the most gifted musician in all of Greece, in all the world. And when the sirens started to sing, and the men were being pulled towards them and wanted to turn the boat around and head for their island to destruction, Orpheus took out his lyre, and he began to play, and he began to sing. And the song that Orpheus sang was far more beautiful even than the song of the sirens. Compared to Orpheus's singing, the sound of the sirens was like a, well, a siren, uh, a clanging gong, a horrible, dissonant noise. And so they weren't interested in the sirens, and they were captivated by Orpheus. And that's what the Lord wants us to be. That's what the expulsive power of a new affection is. We want to hear the music of the Holy Spirit, the music of holiness, the beauty and the delightfulness of God's Word. We want to pour our energies into serving the Lord and into our friendships, into reading and studying and sport and work. And if we're married, then we're to pour our energies especially into our marriages. It's one of the best ways to guard ourselves against sexual immorality. It's one of the reasons why God has given us the gift of marriage. It is to protect us, to protect one another. You husbands are responsible for your wife's sexual purity, and you wives are responsible to a point for your husband's sexual purity. Don't let dissatisfaction drive you to seek comfort and fulfillment somewhere else, even if it's only in your imagination. Let it drive you back to work at your own marriage, which is real, 
which God has given you and work at it with fresh determination. One of God's purposes in marriage is so that a husband and wife can meet one another's sexual needs in the proper God-given context. And it's all too easy for husbands and wives to, to neglect this aspect of marriage, this vitally important aspect of marriage because of tiredness and busyness and the pressures of life. We, we drift from one another, and then that makes intimacy physically much more difficult. And that then leaves us vulnerable to all kinds of temptations, makes us easy prey or easier prey for the devil. And the Scriptures call us to delight in our sexual relationships in marriage. It's one of the best defenses against adultery, a happy, loving, rounded marriage relationship. And this is something we should pray for. We should work at it. We should give time to it. But it's something that we should pray about. We should pray about it for ourselves, and we should pray about it for one another. Don't take it for granted that everyone in Trinity has a perfect marriage, and we don't need to pray for them because they look so happy and, and united. Of course, we're all going to look happy and united. We're not going to come into church and scream at each other. We're, we're going to we're going to paper over cracks and problems. We're not going to wash our dirty linen in public. Of course not. Let's not take it for granted that everyone's marriage is in a healthy condition. And as we pray for one another, as we pray for couples on the prayer card, one of the things, the most important things to pray for is that God will bless their marriage relationship. And of course, and we'll be thinking about this again in our pre-communion service this evening. The Lord Jesus Christ is the hope for all of us. We are all adulterers. We are all adulteresses. Those of us who are married, we have all been unfaithful in our minds, at least to our marriage vows. And we have all been unfaithful to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we need a Savior, because we have not kept this commandment, and we cannot keep it perfectly. We deserve to go to hell, every single one of us here, without exception, for how we have broken this commandment. And so we need a Savior who kept it, and we need a Savior who took the punishment that we deserve for breaking it. And we'll come back to think about that, God willing, this evening. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Then we shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And Lord, we pray that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.